Welcome to the Book Evangelist Podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lisette and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us. Wallow with us. This is episode 14, in which we are discussing All Systems Read by Martha Wells and Upright Women Wanted by Sarah Gailey. Hello, Lissa. Good morning, Marianne. How are you? Pretty good. I must say that I was cleaning my office and came across some temporary tattoos that came with a book. So they're like bookish temporary tattoos, you know, kind of the swag of the book. And I thought, oh, I'm going to put one on. So I put this gold fairy wings, maybe, on the inside of my wrist, and it's driving me absolutely twisty. Um, because you look amazing? I don't know. It just like, it, you know, it bends when I bend to my wrist and then it's oh. like all shiny gold and it's flashing around. I'm like, oh, on one hand, I'm like, it's distracting. And then I worry that I'm going to ruin it by bending my wrist. That somehow I'm going to crack the pretty shiny, shiny. I don't know. I just I need to wear more temporary. tattoos. Yeah, I was going to say, I got some temporary tattoos, and they said, don't put them on the inside of your arm because it will rub too much. Put them boldly on the outside of your arm, like where your watch goes or like up on your forearm. So I should be less secretive. Yes. I'll try. I know. It felt really sort of confrontational when I read the instructions, though. Like, you want me to to manifest these emotion, you know, statements and then also do it really boldly? Hmm. Yeah, and like like big tattoo is is pushing you around in terms of your behavior and how you should wear your temporary tattoos. Yes. Assert your dominance over big tattoo lists. So you wear your tattoos wherever you want. I mean, so. mostly I'm just sitting in my house in a reading slump, no, not yeah. wearing my tattoos at all. So, <laughs> so, so I have been slumping. Uh, how is your reading slump going there, Lissa? I mean, it's pretty slumpy. I have two library books that um, I've had the whole, well, I have a stack of library books I've had this entire time, three months now, um, and two of them I'm halfway through, and my bookmark is just halfway through, and every once in a while I read a couple more pages. And Yeah. I'm kind of like that. I took back some of the books, because, of course, before recognizing that we were going to be at home and the libraries were going to shut down, we went and, like, you know, just kind of did that. It's like one of those shopping sprees where you have two minutes to get all the stuff you can get. Yes. So we just had armloads of books. And we took most of them back, but I kept a few, like, renewed. You had until, like, I don't know what, a few days ago before you had to start bringing them back. But then I renewed them as well. But there are some that I'm excited to read and have not touched. Like How to Be a Victorian. That's where I'm at. I just can't. Yeah. I know. But that sounds amazing. It doesn't it, and I just cannot make much progress. I will say that something that has really helped me, and this is the honest to Pete truth here, in this yes. reading slump, is that the Murderbot novellas, one of which, the first one of which we're talking about today, came up on Tor.com as like free downloads yes. before her big novel came out, and I 
got the, I owned two of them in physical copy anyway. Um, but I got them all as ebooks and I've been rereading those and that has helped get me out of a reading slump. Excellent. So, so I've been able to read those but I haven't been able to read other things. And I don't know whether it's because they're like a guaranteed product for me. I've read them before and I knew that I liked them or whether they're just so, I'll tell you, spoiler here, I love them. Uh, whether they're so amazing that I just was happy to read them. But even then I've been reading them in little bitty chunks and these are little short books and I've been reading them in little bitty chunks. So. I, I think know. I'm all here for the reread of something that I liked. Like, that's been really nice. And and not even, like, the deep reread where you go back and read something you read a long time ago. Like, I re-listened to Upright Women Wanted for today. Um, and it's not... I mean, I'd read it twice pretty recently, and I re-listened. And then I reread most of All Systems Read for today. Um, and it was nice because I, I wasn't going to be surprised. And then the surprises could come from, like how I'm different now or how I notice more now, how the world's different and the surprise mm. didn't come from the page. So I liked I liked the reread. Well, when we get into that, I'll be interested to hear what was different for you the second time through with that particular book and, and with Upright Women Wanted too, which I've only read one time. So you can tell me what will happen if I read them, read it again. So we have not only been in a reading slump, we've been kind of in a podcasting slump as well. Um, it's true. It's true. I was telling you, I think that I can't understand how two people who are more or less, you know, huddling at home all the time can possibly be as busy as we have been. It's been madness. It's true. I just, I mean, in my normal life, a week may go by and I have four things I absolutely have to do. And then now it's like every day has a list of things I absolutely must do. I don't know why. Um, we used to frequently, I don't know if you knew this, but we used to frequently podcast on my morning off work. And uh -huh. everything now is so blurry. And also, my workplace does not currently have mornings off work because we don't currently have evening hours. Um, so I just like the work-life balance and being able to say for sure, here's a time period I'm not working is really tricky. Yeah. So this is my and morning off work. Out, I work at one o'clock. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and school is out, and like everything just keeps, yeah, yeah. So I think it's fair that we had a podcasting slump. Um, okay, but I'm glad to be podcasting it's right. it's, today. It's right. It's right. Yeah, it's it's a relaxed podcast. It's a, a homely in the better sense of the word, a podcast. You no, know, it's like I'm just happy to be with you always. So, yes. So today, I had suggested for this episode that we look at novellas, which I have become interested in, in the popular popularity of novellas as a form and as a length. I can't remember the last time I read a novella before, like the last year and a half. I just, there weren't any that I could think of. Um... And suddenly it seems to me like they're everywhere. And as longtime NaNoWriMo writers, both you and I are familiar with what a 50,000 word story can do. And 50,000 is kind of, I think, the threshold bare minimum for a proper novel. Yeah. And 
we know how much you can cram into that. And so I was, I got interested in novellas and I developed a crackpot theory about novellas. <gasps> Tell me more about your crackpot right. theory. I think that, you know, like there were a ton of novellas, like Victorian book land. And then there was nothing for decades uh, from like the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, nothing, right? Or very few. Yes. And then suddenly, bam, novellas everywhere. And I think this has to do with economics. Uh, it has to do with if I'm going to print a paper book, right? Yes. There are costs associated with it, and the cover price on a novella is not lower enough from the cover price of a of a full size novel to appeal to people, right? So if I'm going to spend my I don't know what does a my twenty five dollars oh. on a brand new hardcover, yeah. I'm going to want a big chunky book as opposed to a little slim book because of for value. Yeah, perceived value of, regardless of whether the contents are any good or not. But, like, more is better, right? And you get, like, even in meal portions in the United States, we went from dainty, you know, uh, supposed to have, you know, a protein the size of a deck of cards or whatever, versus what you actually get if you go into a restaurant. They don't bring you a dainty plate of food. They bring you a huge plate of food. Um, so I felt like, Maybe publishers were looking and saying it's not economically reasonable to publish novellas. And I had this quote from Stephen Kink, right? Who's a guy who has published one or two things in his life. A um, couple. And he published a book of his novellas called Different Seasons. I've read four. part of that. Okay, I have not because I just, gen he's a great writer, but I just generally assume that he's too scary for me even when he's not. Um, has four of his novellas in it, and he said, this is from The Atlantic, and it said, Stephen King characterizes himself as a maturing writer who could publish his laundry list if he wanted to, but his novellas, no takers. And he says, I couldn't publish these tales because they were too long to be short and too short to be really long, he lamented. King illustrates his point with a geographical metaphor. The short story and the novel are like two respected nations sharing a vast, ill-defined, and sordid border region. At some point, the writer wakes up with alarm and realizes that he's come or is coming to a really terrible place, King intones, an anarchy-ridden literary banana republic called the novella. It's a dark place for a writer to be, and most feel they must keep going or else turn back. So, to me, that, like sums it up pretty well and it uh like if Stephen King can't publish a novella nobody can publish a novella and I think that he was talking about the, you know, the lack of of magazines back in the day magazines published what would now be called long reads right things that take you a few hours street and there's hardly any magazines that did that for a very long time harper's maybe the new yorker but not often in the new yorker but not often in new yorker and just but it used to be like a lot of the dickens novels were serialized and um we were just reading one for another book group that was serialized right yeah um the portrait of dorian gray and as i think 
print magazines stopped publishing those things and the the market for long read form things dried up and the real physical book market wasn't picking those up I think it just about killed the novella off and the reasons I think that maybe we're seeing a rise in them now is economic as well that you're seeing electronic magazines who don't have to have space constraints and the rise of the ebook and I think that it's a combination with like short attention spans I can read this in an afternoon which is certainly something I've found with my reading slump right now is I I can commit to a murderbot novella because it's a low commitment threshold for me and I know a lot of people read on their commutes like people who live in big cities and commute via train and so forth that it's something that you can commit to and read during that or just you know it's over with in a weekend and done because people don't maybe read during the week as much I think so I think that the changing economics of the publishing landscape plus lifestyle changes in people are giving us back the novella what do you think about my crackpot theory I like it and I think everything about the last three months just reinforces it Um, when people are in situations where the world is changing really fast um, getting partway into a book and then getting distracted and trying to come back to that story when so much else has changed is really hard so being able to sit down and get into a novella and sort of finish it and reach that stopping point um, is lovely Um, I think that that's yeah I think that that's perfect I think publishers um, have are able to promo them better or sale them better and then lead people to other books um, I don't know yeah I think it's definitely been easier to read novellas lately um, you know even the the new book club I'm running for work I tried to pick shorter books because not because I thought people didn't have time because um, I feel like people might have extra time right now, but because <laughs> I thought we yes. needed to get through them faster, right? So I set the book club every other week so we could get through things faster because the world's changing so fast and is so uncertain that holding on to a long-form big book for a long time while you get through it, it's just a lot to hold on to. It is. And coming into stay-at-home and, you know, a s- smaller life, I, my instinct would have been that I would be wallowing in great big books that now would be the perfect time to read Moby Dick, you know, or, right. or one of those big Michener novels from the 1970s because I was going to have all this time where I'm not going to places that I used to go and not doing a lot of things that I used to do. But it's just too darn much, just exhausting. Um, so these little snack size stories are turning out to be what the world needs now. So good for you for choosing yeah. novellas for today. Very who smart. knew? Who knew? I was, uh, you. guess you I'm knew. having a psychic episode there. Very good. So we have two of them. And I guess I'm going to talk about All Systems Red because a book that I have been pushing on you for a while. It. I right? think it was my reading uh, resolution for this year was to read for this, this book. year and. But for months before that, I think I was like, Lissa, you got to go read All Systems Red. you got to do it it's now. True. And, and you were resistant. Uh, I was but resistant. That's, that's okay. It's all right. It's, you can be resistant. You don't have to bend to my will. Although, if everyone bent to my will, that would, of course, be awesome. 
So here is the Goodreads write-up for All Systems Red by Martha Wells. It is sometimes also called Murderbot Number 1. In a corporate-dominated spacefaring future, planetary missions must be approved and supplied by the company. Exploratory teams are accompanied by company-supplied security androids for their own safety. But in a society where contracts are awarded to the lowest bidder, safety isn't a primary concern. On a distant planet, a team of scientists are conducting surface tests, shattered by their company-supplied droid, a self-aware SEC unit that has hacked its own governor module and refers to itself, though never out loud, as Murderbot. Scornful of humans, all it really wants is to be left alone long enough to figure out who it is. But when a neighboring mission goes dark, it's up to the scientists and their murder bot to get to the truth. Do you think that's an accurate uh, plot synopsis there, Lisa? I do. I think it's one of those plot synopses that does a good job of setting up what's going to go on a little bit without giving away the flavor. Yeah, and the flavor is super important in this one. The only big problem I have with it is the reference to Murderbot as an android, which Mm -hmm, I think of being more purely robotic, and it is, in fact, a construct. It has organic portions of itself and mechanical portions of itself. Um, So it's kind of that that thing. Yes. I feel I, like... Go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, it says all it really wants is to be left alone to figure out who it is. I think it wants to be left alone to watch media, but, you know. Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> but that's part of the flavor. It is part And I of feel the like using Android is like that big, broad umbrella term of like, this is a sci-fi kind of book with sci-fi kind of things like androids. You know, it's in that opening two sentences of the description. Right. And then it gets more specific... Yeah, it's pre- it's pretty good, and it's all systems read, and I tell people all the time because I recommend it all the time. You don't think you're going to want to read this book. Um, you're going to say, "Oh, I don't do." Um, I mean, its name is Murderbot for Pete's sake, and they're like, "I don't do uh, pew pew shoot 'em up space uh, murder books." But you're really going to like it if you read it, so it's tough. Um, I will say I also did a little bit of minor five-click research on this. And Martha Wells gave an interview to Tor.com where they asked her, it says, a lot of authors seem to discourage writing novellas. What made you decide to go short? So I thought that worked for a discussion. And she says, that used to be the case because there just weren't markets for novellas. They were too short for book publishers and too long for most print magazines. But once ebooks and online magazines became more prevalent, that changed completely and now novellas are everywhere. I originally meant for all systems read to be a short story, but the story needed to be longer. After Tor.com Publishing bought it for their novella line, they wanted more novellas, and I wanted to write more about the characters that became a series, uh, which it did. So All Systems Red came out in 2017 and is followed by Artificial Condition in May of 18, Rogue Protocol in August of 18, and Exit Strategy in October of 18. Um, the first novel in this series, which I'm currently reading, uh, it's called Network Effect, was released in May of 2020. There is a sequel novella due to be published in April of 21, and apparently there was also a short story regarding this. So she's been working 
and all the different lengths with this character in this this world. And I felt very vindicated by her answer about why she's writing novellas now because it falls in with my uh, evil um, conspiracy theory. So, about novellas. <laughs> um, so, I did not listen to the audiobook of this. I had the print book from the library, um, which a fellow um, reader friend put into my hands, put the library copy into my hands uh-huh. and said, I think you're next on the list. Check this out. Um, so I happen to have it in my hands when we went into shutdown mode. Um, and I read the entire book out loud to my children. Um, and it was lovely to experience that way. Um, I'm thinking, although this is the only book I've done that with this whole time at home, um, that reading out loud when I really couldn't focus and concentrate Uh, reading out loud to an audience was a very good way to have to keep going and not be distracted and not check the news and not respond to a text. Because um, in this story, my kids were like, no, mom, keep going. Like, we don't need to go to bed. We don't need to eat. Just (laughs) read read this story to us. Um, So that was a a new experiment for me as well. Not that I've never read aloud to them, but we tend to go more with listening to the audiobook together. Um, So that was fun. And honestly, it was really fun to read this book aloud to act out the characters to decide how things sounded yeah i can't imagine what the i have not heard the audiobook either and i'm kind of curious now to like what murder bot's voice would sound like according to tor who published it or according to martha wells who may have had some input uh, because i can hear murder bot very clearly inside my head about no it sounds the same and I think it's a really brave book for you to choose to read out loud to your children, not knowing what was going to happen, uh, because lots of things could have happened. I read out loud to my children every day for years at bedtime. We read all the Newbery Award winners, uh, and I would read for 15 or 20 minutes at bedtime, like for years and years and years. But, you know, the Newbery Award winners are pretty safe bets because they're children's books, <laughs> which... I can't remember whether I had told you, like, there's no, uh, like, sex or drugs or a lot of rock and roll in these. And we and we just read the one, and so I haven't read book two yet because oh. they haven't wanted to read book two, but they book haven't given me favorite. permission to read it without them. There you go. So book two is I'm my just, favorite. I mean, I'm just gonna, there's a character I'm just in book ahead. two that is my favorite character in the series and shows up in a novel, so I'm super excited. Uh, I knew the character was going to show up in the novel, and I was like, I love it! So, yes. Excellent. And I think we started book two. We, because when I reread this and looked at the end, I was like, wait, but what happens? I know what happens after this a little bit. But I think we started it, and then, you know, just our lives changed and our routines changed, and we didn't get back to it. Yes, the story no of my reading no slump. There is no routine. Like, no, that's true. Okay. And then you are going to tell us about Upright Women Wanted. Yes. So um, in Upright Women Wanted, award-winning author Sarah Gailey reinvents the pulp Western with an explicitly anti-fascist near-future story of queer identity. That girl's got more wrong notions than a barn owl's got mean looks. Esther is a stowaway. She's hidden herself away in the librarian's book wagon in an attempt to escape the marriage her father has arranged for her, a marriage to the man who was previously engaged to her best friend, her best friend who she was in love with. 
her best friend who was just executed for possession of resistance propaganda. The future American Southwest is full of bandits, fascists, and queer librarian spies on horseback trying to do the right thing. And I have the print copy of the book in front of me, and the very top it says, Are you a coward or are you a librarian? Which I thought was the best tagline ever, maybe. I mean, it made me yeah. want to read it right away. Me too. I had to give, I, it was one of those books that I had at the beginning of, you know, home lockdown. And so I got to keep it for a long time, but I had to give it back. I felt yeah. like it was the right thing to do. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so other people can have it and read it. Yes. So, so what do you think of this description? Is this a good description of this book? I think so. Um, it tells you what Esther's problem is at the beginning of the book. And I loved the idea. Sarah Gailey sets things in kind of alternate Western settings a lot. They're the River of Teeth books are kind of similar to this and that they take place in the American West or the, or the South in alternate histories that could exist. Um, this one is more contemporary. It's not like a not like a past existence, but like a current one in a way, because they talk about, you know, diesel and cars and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I think it works as a description and it tells you what the problem that Esther has is. Um, I don't think either one of these descriptions is teasing like the rest of the characters. They're just focusing on, you know, the main character, which is probably good. Do you think that that focusing on the main character is specific to a novella? I think that one of the structural differences between a novella and a, a novel is that there are many fewer or maybe no side plots. Like the in a full-length novel, you have time and room and space to have secondary characters be wildly important to the plot and have arcs of their own and things going on and that's a lot harder in a novella because it, they're really spare were cut down I mean it's not they have no subplots but way less so probably the main character is even more important in a novella if that makes sense yeah I think their story is the story yeah like I was trying to make a list of all the characters in these books from memory um, and I did I felt like a pretty good job a-plus work. <laughs> Thank For you. For not having the books in front of you, you did amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but it took me a little while, even with Upright Women Wanted, which these characters are super important, it took me several minutes to remember, like, the names of the librarians that she meets. Uh, and each one of my lists ended with a question mark because I couldn't remember whether there's anybody more. Like, Murderbot has this team of scientists that it is involved with and responsible for supposed to keep them alive uh throughout the novella but their characters are so drastically less important than its own yeah um, they could easily fall into being props for the plot if mishandled so. i agree yeah so what sort of so we have two very different books here. One is a, a space opera with an android or 
construct main character, and the other one is a, a Western with a uh, main character, Esther, is a, a young girl, a young woman. Um, do you see any similarities between those two? I mean, I think that they're both, like, a fair bit of main character trying to figure out who they are um, mm-hmm. and how to navigate the world, which, I mean, I think is sort of the plot of most books. Yeah. <laughs> so I, in, in this one, I think Rick's interesting about, I think Esther is in a way more overtly um, marginalized, if that makes sense, than Murderbot is. Does that make sense to you? Like it kind, it's, it's it very, kind of it's does. very plot forward. Her, her worries about her queerness, um, whether or not it's okay to have feelings for another girl, and whether or not that's socially acceptable, and the 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 consequences was really, I thought, plot forward in that. Whereas all systems read. In the end, I think is about who is valued in society and what the nature of humanity is and uh, the nature of, of how we relate to other people and the way we treat them. But in a way, it was more backburnered, more of a discovery. It's so interesting because in... Because as you're explaining that, I'm like, oh, no, but that's what the other book was about, too. Yeah, it is. They're about the same thing. They're they're really about the same thing. Like in Murderbot, there's these moments where the other people around Murderbot are are talking about, um, you know, does Murderbot, like, realize that they're in a form of slavery? And does Murderbot realize that, you know, like different people are up in in arms, at least verbally, um, trying to defend Murderbot's rights or trying to right. get Murderbot to have a more self-awareness about their situation and how it needs to change. Right. They want Murderbot to ride in the crew cabin, for example. And this makes Murderbot super uncomfortable. It's not ready to... It hates trying to make eye contact with people. Like, it won't look at you out of its eyes. It wants to look at you on video, on camera. Uh, things like that. So, but yes, the the, it's not used to being treated as a team member and as a whole person uh, and as a, yeah, a sentient, Which is self-actualized totally thing. Esther same at the thing. beginning of the, the book. The same thing. Same, same book. Right? Esther's yes. like, I'm hiding in here <laughs> because I want to join you and be virtuous. And I'm trying my best to lie about that fact because, because I think that's what you want to hear. And the other people are like... Well, we'll let you stay as they casually brush hands romantically, um, you know, and snicker into their hands as she, I mean, the whole thing is, they're so similar and so in different settings and the characters are in different places and doing different levels of pretending. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe is that a a theme that we're seeing a lot in science fiction? Because I would... I would still categorize Upright Women Wanted in the science fiction category as a dystopian world and so forth. This kind of re-examination we're having societally about each other and how we treat and value each other and the voices at the table. 
I think for sure. And I think like putting it all in sort of like a broader speculative fiction um, category makes it a lot easier for authors to tell us different stories and help us explore different ways of thinking about things in this like other speculative um I mean these books are fun stories and it's interesting to watch the characters interact and they're witty and entertaining and they're much less confrontational than right. a Facebook post trying to teach me the same thing. Mm-hmm. I particularly liked with Upright Women Wanted the the mashing together of the story that it's telling socially with the real voicey um, twang of pulp westerns. This very uh, particularly American genre of fiction. And I thought it just worked terrifically well in that. And it's another book that I could hear very clearly in my head. And the, the tone of it really made it enhanced the pleasure of reading the book to me. I thought it was a really fun book to read. Uh, despite the fact that terrible things are happening to people and have happened to people um, pretty much all the way through. Right? Like, it's got that kind of, like, violence that I can kind of handle in books. Um, and I can't even really articulate how the violence in this book is different than the violence in the books I definitely don't want to read, but it has to do with suspense and intent and... It things. could. It maybe it has to do with the fact that the, like the violence. I want to say it's more personal, but it's more character driven. It's not just bang bang pew 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 shoot him up shoot him up shoot him up. But that the, the, what happens? And this is true of Murderbot too. Murderbot is always getting blown up. Um, it's get shot and stabbed and zapped and everything else happens to poor Murderbot. But. Like the dismantling and putting back together repeatedly of Murderbot is part of understanding its nature as a a sentient being. Let's say we're kind of dismantling ourselves. You're being dismantled physically, and you're busy. Is there such a word as remantling? Now mm. there is. They're remantling yourself into who you are, and I felt like a lot of the the violent portions of upright women were the same. Like this is a violent world that is a threat to these people. And the violence is part of my understanding of the, the threat to those people and who they are and their survival in it or their ability to overcome it or re um, contextualize the violence of the world and turn it was important to them becoming the people that they were becoming. Am I very philosophical today? Maybe. Oh no, I was going to take the philo- the philosophical parts far. Like, <laughs> okay, go you go for it. Right, like if the bloody dismembered bodies get talked about in turn, which both books have, yeah, get talked about in terms of what are the consequences of this and what are the motivations of this and what effects will this have in the world and what broader change, um, social change, consequences, how will this change us as people for having encountered this? How does this change the dynamics in our group for having encountered this? Like if those things all come up in the book, I'm a lot more okay with the dismemberment. See, this is what I was trying to say, but you say it so clearly. 
uh, while I'm over here in a a fog of needing a caffeine IV, IV saying it poorly. So you did it perfect. Like I need my dismemberment to be towards social justice. There you go. That's right. Community change or <laughs> something like that. Yes. I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is like a hill I would die on exactly. But <laughs> and and I don't want people to think that these books are are like just endless violence because there's so much not. Um, but yes. my tolerance is so low. Like so low. last night I was chatting with somebody about a show that I had said, oh, I, st- I don't want to rewatch it because I think it's too scary for me. And they they just look so skeptical. And I said, well, I mean, it has a like small moments of minor suspense, which is what I was saying. It's, well, like, Lisa, you're talking to somebody, people like, oh, I assume you've seen all of Doctor Who. And I'm like, no, I I watched Doctor Who as a, as a kid when I lived in England. And then when it restarted, I thought, Doctor Who, yeah, I'm in. But I got scared. I was <laughs> scared of There was an too. episode with gas masks in it, and I was freaked out. And I have not really watched it since because I don't want to be scared too much. I remember when I tried, like, three episodes of Doctor Who, and I was staying up late alone in my kitchen. Yes. And, like, watching it on, like, my phone screen while I did dishes. And oh. I was like, no, 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 this is dark, and there are shadows, and I'm turning this off. Turning this off. That's right. So, yeah. So, clearly, people out there in podcast land are tolerance for. Uh, creepiness is is really really low so one one on a scale of one to a thousand yeah that's the one that's the correct answer there yes so so these were not super violent i did not have to read through my fingers or anything like that so it's okay yes somehow this is leading us into my recommendation for the other novella i read during safer at home which was um fina by nino cipri Um, And so the description is, well, the top description is, it's a rambunctious, touching story that blends all the horrors the multiverse has to offer with the everyday awfulness of low-wage work. It explores queer relationships and queer feelings, capitalism and accountability, labor and love, all with a bouncing sense of humor and a commitment to the strange. And I got it from the library because... Um, I read a quote that that Annalie Newitz called it a magical anti-capitalist adventure, and also because it was short and it had a like colorful cover. Um, but then, as I got into it, I saw numerous mentions on Twitter of people talking about carnivorous furniture, <gasps> and then I was like, "Oh, well, I'm going to prioritize this book because I really actually now need to know what that refers to." <laughs> Do the fr- does the furniture like eat people? I mean, there's carnivorous furniture. Yes. Um, but it takes place in a store that's a lot like Ikea-ish. Um, and and then there's like multiverses and they have to go through the multiverse portals into other versions of the... And it's amazing. It It is committed to being strange and it just keeps getting more strange. And then you think, well, that was strange. And then you turn the page and it's more, more strange. Wow. Um, and it's lovely. Um, I returned it to the library this week and I almost pulled it back out of the book drop as it was going down the conveyor belt because I suddenly wanted to read it again. Maybe you should just buy yourself a copy. Lisa. I mean, I think so. And then I can loan it to everybody, which is kind of my kind of my thing right now yeah so but it was short too right so i can read a strange thing that is short yeah easier more easily than i can read a strange thing that is big and sometimes a strange thing that is big starts one kind of strange and then twists and turns more 
Yeah. You know, like when we've talked about like bigger books that we had trouble getting into or books where the first third was one thing and then it changed. Yes. I actually have a book sitting on my shelf and I won't say which book it is. It's a fairly famous uh, YA book that the first third uh, is all I've ever read because the main character was annoying me and I didn't like the way the story was going, but my daughter read the whole thing finally, although she had the same problem with the first third. And she said the second half has like fairies and stuff in it, which was a total surprise to me because the first half is definitely fairy free. Um, and it goes from a, a relatively normal historical YA into apparently a total crazy town fantasy. Um, yeah. So, yes. I have had several so, books like that, and particularly really big books like uh, Cavalier and Clay and, and um, uh, what's it, Strange and Mr. Norrell. Oh, see, I've never gotten into either one of those, although yeah, I've tried. Yeah, I put them, them both down because they're so big. I might eat them. I mean, I eat books, right? Uh, right. I might read them as e-books, but they're just doorstops to carry around with you. But I just, they get, they were so strange, I thought maybe something smaller so do you think that's why novellas appeal because they can afford to be really unusual i think that novellas can afford to be more unusual and i think that readers can handle going into something more unusual in a in what they know is a smaller chunk yeah so traditionally have you read a lot of novellas have they been something that appealed to you no because i always encountered them um, in like Regency romance novels or like romance novel collections. Um, and in, in those books, it's just like skip straight to like, here are two people, here they don't like each other, here they like each other, the end. Yeah. And I, I, there was not enough other stuff to make those stories interesting. Traditionally, I have liked some short Regency romance novels, but they've been funny ones um, mm -hmm. that are more interested in humor than the. Uh, pitiful, poverty-stricken damsel um, romance novel thing. Yes, I like funny ones. But I guess, that, like I said, I had not read one in, in years um, until this last year I've read several. So did we ever define like how many words a novella is? No, and I think it like varies and it depends on if it's for a certain award category or for a certain publisher or yeah, so I don't know. I I tried to look it up, and I saw several different ones from like some people say twenty thousand to forty thousand, some is twenty thousand to fifty thousand. I think there are very long short stories in the fifteen thousand word count, but by the time you reach twenty, that's a novella for sure. And I know that novels tend to start right about fifty thousand words, so somewhere in there seems about right. Um, as a like I said, as a reader, I've really been enjoying them lately. Probably because of time and my reading slump, but also it does give you permission to try a new genre that you're not sure you're going to like. The number of westerns that I have read in the last 15 years is pretty short. Um, that one by Charles Portis, True Grit. Mm -hmm. I read True Grit. And we're getting quite near the end of the list now. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know that I would want to read Westerns all day, every day, but I really enjoyed this bite-sized 
real pulpy Western thing. And also, I would try... If a, if a writer that was unfamiliar to me, that was new to me, had a novella, I would be more willing to read that than investing in a big conkin book that they have written to decide whether or not I like their style and their tone and, and the sort of thing that they're writing before a big commitment. It's like speed dating books. It's true. Yes. Did you read the hippo books? I have read some of the hippo books. Yes. I listened to the first one, but I didn't listen to the second one yet. But I, I think that, that they have, I mean, the first one at least had that same Western yes, feel. Yes, it does. I had more trouble following it than I did this one. If that makes sense. It's more, I had more characters doing more stuff, flashing around yes. different characters' viewpoints. And yes, that was harder for me to keep track of than this more linear narrative. Was? Yeah, I listened to the whole audiobook twice because I kept kind of losing track of the. Yeah. And I didn't listen to it twice, like start to finish. I like listened to it twice in that I had to keep starting over or I had to keep backing up a couple chapters. Yeah, and it, it felt like a. And this is not Dana, but it felt like a bigger idea than would fit in a novella. Um, I think as a writer, one of the reasons to write a novella would be to try out an idea. Like you're not sure that people can handle a gigantic book full of, uh, you know, Western full of hippopotami, although they're awesome. Uh, or a book as radical as those are, because they are radical right. in lots of ways. And you want to try out your idea, but you're not sure that you want to commit to 80 or 90,000, 120,000 words of this, or that people will commit to that in a way that they'll commit to something smaller. Um, so maybe trying out your idea, and, and sometimes ideas are medium-sized. They're not sprawling ideas, and but they have more to say than you can get in a short story. I also personally think a good reason to, as a writer, to write novellas would be because of publishing algorithms. If you look at the dates that the Murderbot four novellas came out, you have the 2017 one, and then there's three of them in 2018. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah. And if you are dealing with electronic publishing algorithms like Amazon, for example, the amount of time since you published your last one is important in how much it gets pushed by their algorithm or whether your backlist is pulled in um, to front list things. So being able to publish more frequently, I think, would probably help you pop up in the algorithm more. I agree to all of those things. I think I was probably more likely to listen twice or read twice um, a short story about hippos in the Mississippi Basin than to read one longer story once. Yeah. And I also think it... And I actually, I read uh, Fina at least twice while I had it. Um, I think that if you're going to write something that that has phrases people want to linger over and if it has scenes people want to share and um, things that people are going to want to go back and reread, that having a short thing is a little bit less overwhelming also for your reader than having a 600-page book with a lot of parts people want to linger over and share and revisit. Right. The, like the poster child for that is this is how you lose the time war. Um, oh, yeah, it is. Because it's a really densely written novella. 
um, which has you know perfect, beautiful little sentences and moments in it. Like it's almost like poetry, the whole book, the whole thing. Yeah, and it would be probably overwhelming if it was a bigger book, or those things would get lost, or the necessity of having more action in it, more stuff happen, as opposed to the conversational tone that it has, I think might be lost in a bigger book. Yeah, I don't know what you would do in that book to make it longer that wouldn't be yeah. horrible to it. Yeah, that would be, I said it would be really a detractor to make it anything other than that little little jewel of a thing that it is so um, but you know you could come back to those characters if you wanted to if you wanted to find out what happens to you know red and blue 10 years from now or if you wanted to examine red's history prior to the start of that book you could do that in a series of novellas if you're if you want to explore in that world some more, or in any any of these, some more, you can you can do that. You know, at the at the end of of uh, Upright Women Wanted, we have kind of a changing of the guard in those books, and it's an opening for the adventures of those characters going forward, or what happens. I like minor characters in novels, and both in the Lord knows, and those I have written, uh, a minor character will crop up who dominates the page every time they walk in and who I love, but this is not their book. And I think novellas give you the opportunity to write that character's book and play in that world and examine things that were interesting to you, but were not the, not appropriate for the big book that you might be writing. So can I take an alternate perspective on sure. that? Sure. Bring it. I think that the, the alternate characters that like dominate the page when they're there <clears throat> and don't have their own book and have their own presence within this book as a minor character, they gift the reader with, with the impetus to think about all those other parts the writer didn't give them. Sure. So like in I Upright Women Wanted, you have a character list and I added Amity to it because Amity ah, is like the... That was the one I couldn't remember. Um, Right? Like, she, she's, like, the person who's, like, a key part of the plot right. because she causes a ton of trouble, but also really helps the main character, Esther, sort of change her perspective on things. Um, but we mostly don't get most of her story, even though she's on a wanted poster. And I don't necessarily want to read her story. I, you know, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I would rather that Sarah Gailey went off and wrote some other fantastical, amazing thing for me to read because they're an amazing writer. Um, but I like that every once in a while, when I encounter things in the world, I think about Amity and I wonder about Amity because Amity was such a commanding presence on the page. I can I can see that, and I concur, and I, you know, I'm a big believer that like white space in novels is super important and you don't want to tell people everything because it's exhausting and you want to leave your reader some room there. Um, Amity is an interesting example to pick because Amity is not a particularly likable character in some ways. Not at all. Right, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's like, uh, brusque and in your face. But another character in that book is named Sai. And I would be really interested in in size journey um and and sure i can imagine that as a 
as a reader, I can imagine maybe where Sai came from or where Sai's going or how Sai grew to accept their self um, to, to the point that they already are when we meet Sai on the page. And I would read more about that character, you know, uh, in, in my own book, which is coming out next February, um, <gasps> there is a, a Puka whose name is Elwood and Elwood was not a character I set out to write. Uh, and he appeared in chapter two and had major surprise to me. And he does dominate the page every time he shows up and everybody loves him. Uh, and I can see Elwood. Somebody else who read it says listening to Elwood is like watching drunk history. <laughs> um, because he'll tell you these historical stories, but they're really wrong. They're very wrong. And I can see like having a like a freebie to give away with that book oh, yeah. of like Elwood telling you more historical tales that are just completely and totally wrong. So I think you can take that character and play with them or discuss more. And in that case, it doesn't tell you any more about Elwood, Elwood's history, <laughs> what Elwood is thinking about, who knows what Elwood is thinking about um, or anything else, but it's taking that character's voice and, and playing with it, um, in a way that maybe enhances or refers back to the larger work. So I think there, I there's love that idea. I mean, I love that idea for Elwood and I love like that idea for like size. So now I'm thinking like, what would I want them to, to do? Like I would want them to give me a list of recommended reading, except I would want half of it to be not written yet. You know, I want to see from Sarah Gailey's brain <laughs> into yeah. Sai's character, you know, 10 unapproved materials that Sai would distribute. I want to know what awesome. that stuff is. You know what I, I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have that. Oh. Like, like yes. Or Sai's, like, recipe book. Um, or, like, cooking tips from Sai, because Sai's always trying to teach Esther, like, how to light a fire, how to cook a stew how to do this or that or the other thing so i'd like to see like size survival guide for right. life on the road as a librarian you know um which i think would be super fun so right I, so those are ways that maybe in a regular novel people would put in filler that would make the novel not as good mm -hmm. but in a novella we're left wanting those things and trying to like create those things for sure. ourselves and imagine and, them and i think if you were particularly like the self-published author world, I think it, yeah, I think I could see a lot of people offering things, associated stories in, in a world that they have built that is not the main story or maybe doesn't even advance the, you know, relate to the main plot, but is, is in that world to, to give the reader more buy-in to that world as a whole. I think it's an interesting so, world. So. It is. No so knows. in the self-published world, we expect the self-published author to provide us those things. But in the traditionally published world, those things just immediately appear as fan fiction and fan art. Yeah. Some of them right? do. Like, and I, I mean, I know some authors who've written stories within that world that are short stories associated. Like I was reading actually the publishing dates of the Murderbot books. And it turns out right. I have not read this associated short story. So maybe the concept is you write the short story and you put it out there. And if people like that, maybe they'll come to your novel or novella or combination of those things. 
um, later. Yeah. Seems like a good plan. Yeah. Ah, uh, marketing. It's always so lovely, isn't it? And, and right? Uh, These are all ways to do it. Yep. You do that. it yourself, or you get fans who do it for you because they're compelled now to go write the Sai and Esther's Guide to Living on the Road as Librarians. And Yeah, you should write that. Get right I on should. It. it would should. have a lot of chapters about fighting fascism, actually. <laughs> That's and right. And also recipes. <laughs> Fashion, f- yeah, fighting fascism plus recipes. That's a perfect, mm-hmm. perfect perfect book there it would be amazing i mean i'm kind of lazy and really i just want someone else to write it so then i can buy it for people but well you know it's it's a fine balance there yeah well there's there's that there is that but yeah you you could do it yourself if you want i could do it myself i could put the (laughs) idea out into the world and hope someone else does a thing i could buy um Okay, I want to transition us to next time, yep. actually. Which I think kind of ties in here, in a way. It does. Um, next time, we are going to read The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, uh, which is also speculative fiction um, from a long time ago. And it's now in the public domain, which makes it very available as an ebook and an audiobook and in all kinds of formats and adaptations. And then we're going to maybe try to talk about whether or not we would ever want to rewrite or adapt a public domain book into a new story, a la Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, or Sensibility and Sea Monsters, or any other adaptation or retelling. Are you excited about this idea? I am, uh, and there have been rewrites or adaptations that I have loved and some that I have not loved. So it'll be super exciting. I'm excited to read The Time Machine while thinking about how I would rewrite it. Yeah, I wonder whether anybody's ever done a rewrite of The Time Machine. I don't if know. anybody knows, they can tell me. There you go. Yes. I mean, we'll look for it. But yeah. not before we pitch our own ideas. Sure, 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 sure. Yes. We don't want to be too influenced. Okay, so can I, can oh. ex- I can expect an idea from you next time? Or do you expect me to bring, like if I were going to adapt the time machine how would i do it oh we definitely should pitch to each okay. other all right bring it I, I am ready here i am ready ideas. here we don't have baseball to have personal bets on so we'll have yes. to do this instead <laughs> yes our time war our time machine pitch war will be epic in every way okay um <laughs> i am glad we are overcoming our podcasting slump me too it's good to talk about books or, or to talk to another human being, period. Is, I mean, the, the fact that it's you is a bonus, but... The fact that it's you is a bonus, but talking to another <laughs> human being, period, is pretty amazing. Pretty right awesome, now. yeah. Thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations to thebookevangelist at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.